Right. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us this morning here at Lighthouse Discipleship Center. My name is Dave Everett, and we're going to be continuing our teachings this morning on the new covenant in my blood. And so, just so you know, all of our teachings are archived on our website at lighthousediscipleship.org, as well as our YouTube channel, Lighthouse Discipleship Center. In case you're, and we also want to say thank you to all those who partner with us for their tithes and their offerings. In case you're wondering how to do so, you can simply go to our website at lighthousediscipleship.org. In the top right corner, you will see the word give. It's highlighted in blue with a button. And you click on that, and you can give them anywhere around the world. If you'd rather send us a check, you can simply make your checks payable to the Lighthouse Discipleship Center. And you can find our mailing address at the bottom and put it on every page on our website. And if you're in the United States, just so you know, all your tax contributions are 100% tax deductible as we are a 501c3 church. So with all the announcements out of the way, let's go ahead and jump right into our message this morning as we're talking about the covenant of his blood. We're talking about the, the new covenant and the blood of Jesus. And our key verse that we, we, we went last, we, what we talked about last week and what we continue to talk about in the weeks to come <coughs> is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where it begins with verse 23, Paul's going over to communion. He says, For I receive in the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the, <coughs> excuse me, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it. And remember to me. Excuse me. And so this is where we get the phrase of the title of our, our series here, The New Covenant in My Blood. And we're talking about the cut the new covenant, and we're talking in my blood. We can't you can't separate the two. Okay? And so they're one, and that's why we have titled as such. And so what I want to do first of all is just give a little brief uh, Recap of some of the things that we highlighted last week and then give some, some new territory. So, you know, the communion, and we'll spend a lot more time with 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in a later lesson, but <coughs> we're supposed to do this in remembrance of Him. We're supposed to remember the new covenant. We're supposed to remember the new covenant in His blood. This is something that we are supposed to do often. <coughs> Excuse me. For Paul goes on to say, For not that you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. There's something that we need to proclaim. We need to proclaim the gospel. We need to proclaim the new covenant. We need to proclaim the new covenant of his blood. We need the reminder, but we also need to proclaim it. Excuse me again. And so, with that in mind, you know, and this, phrase, this whole phrase comes from when Jesus at the last supper, at the last Passover, said, For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. It is not just something that Paul came up with. This came from the words of Jesus himself. Peter says it this way, knowing that you were not redeemed with the corrupt things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as in a lamb without blemish and without spot. We'll spend a little bit more time with this later in our later lessons, but we were purchased. We were redeemed by the blood of Jesus, okay? 
It also says in Hebrews that almost, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. In Ephesians, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, and also Colossians, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We'll be spending more time on this redemption and on the blood of Jesus and <coughs> excuse me, and later lessons as we go forward. Okay, get this kink out of my throat. So I can go forward. Amen. So, so we're talking about the covenant of His blood, and we'll spend more time on we talked on both last week, and we'll spend more time on the blood in the weeks to come. But this morning I want to spend more time talking about covenant. I want to describe what covenant is. And even what I share this morning is not going to be exhaustive. I could spend weeks on this. Okay? And so we could spend several sessions just talking about covenant in general. Excuse me. But what I do want to, when I want to launch this off, I want to go to Genesis chapter 15. And we'll talk briefly about Abraham. And just 15, remember God had already promised that Abraham would be the, the father of many nations. He changed his name from Abram, meaning fatherly, to Abraham, the father of many nations. And Abraham said to God, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And so God said to him, God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. <coughs> Excuse me. So this seems strange. I mean, first of all, if God made you a promise, wouldn't you have a question? How do I know that it's going to be? How do I know I will inherit it? How many of us have been praying for God for breakthroughs? Excuse me for an answer of prayer. And we, we come right back at him and say, Lord, how do we know that we're gonna, it's going to happen? What's the guarantee? that we know that our prayer is going to be answered. And I believe that God answered his question, and he answered very specifically, but to us this might seem like a strange answer. Instead of just answering the question, he says, bring me this heifer, this cow, this goat, this ram, this turtle dove, and this pigeon. What kind of answer is that to the question of, how do I know I will inherit the promise? How do I know I will inherit the blessing that you promise upon me and to my seed. How do I know it? Well, this whole answer is a covenant language. He's talking about covenant. Excuse me. And God made a covenant with Abraham. And he showed him how, through this covenant, how that he would be his provider. He would be his protector. He would be his blesser. In other words, God bound himself by covenant to this promise to Abraham. Okay? And that's a key factor we're going to be looking at in, in a few moments. See, a covenant is perpetual where a contract is over a period of time. <coughs> if you break a contract, there might be a penalty, there might be a fine, you might go to jail. But if you break a covenant, there are only one way to get out of a covenant, and that is through death. That's why marriage 
is until death do us part. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is not just escalating the dating relationship to a new level. Marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman. And it's a covenant, and it's till death do us part. Okay? And so marriage is sacred. Mar marriage, according to Hebrews chapter three, uh, 13, excuse me, is, is holy. God instituted marriage. Okay? And so, but, so God made a covenant with with Abraham, and we'll get we'll spend more time with that later. But sometimes people made a covenant with each other outside of marriage. <coughs> Excuse me. And when two people made a covenant with each other, they would take a ram or a goat, they would cut it in half, and then they would face each other, and then they would walk towards each other between the two to two pieces and passing each other in the center. It was an illustrative ceremony of making a covenant with each other. Okay? And both parties were obligated to protect and provide for each other. That's what a covenant was. And we're gonna look if we get time we'll, we'll look at a covenant relationship between David and Jonathan. Where they had a covenant relationship as friends. Okay? And when two parties make a covenant with each other, like in marriage, what belongs to you is also your partner's, also your the one you make covenant with, and vice versa. So, <coughs> when you make a covenant with another person, whatever you have is theirs, and you are also sworn to by covenant to protect each other and to provide for each other. Obviously, if you make a covenant with a rich person and a poor person, the, the lesser party is going to get the most benefits out of that. Well, this all points to our, co our covenant relationship to God. Because in this covenant, in his blood, that's what we're talking about. We are the lesser party. And God's made a covenant with us. Okay? We have nothing to offer God. But he has everything to offer us. And he made a covenant. And he made that covenant, the ceremony of that covenant was up through the cross, through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Okay? God has bound himself to us by covenant. And he guaranteed that covenant by his blood. And we're going to spend more time with the blood part of that in later weeks. Okay, so hopefully I'm making sense. Let me just say this for now. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says, For where there is a testament or covenant or will, there must also be a necessity of the death of that testament. <coughs> in other words, before the covenant or testament can come into effect, there must be a death of the testator. Well, there was a death of the testator. And his name is called Jesus. And that's called the finished work of the cross. And it's called the new covenant of his blood. Again, we'll spend more time with that in later weeks. Okay. Um, but for now, 
Let's recap again. We did a little bit of recap at the beginning, but let's recap one more time and talk about the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. We spent some time on this last week. I'm not going to go into exhaustion this week, but about the Ark of the Covenant. See, the Ark of the Covenant was the centerpiece of the tabernacle. And you can read a lot about this in Exodus 25, as well as the tabernacle in Leviticus 16 and other, other scriptures. But the, the, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence, His majesty, His glory, His grace. It was the Ark of the Covenant. So it represented God's covenant with His people, Israel. The Ark of the Covenant also, wherever, wherever it was, it brought blessing and honor and victory, even in times of war. But in the Old Testament, and you can read again a lot about this in Leviticus 16 and other scriptures, it, the Ark of the Covenant was hidden behind a veil. See, the, there was two rooms, or two chambers in the, in the tabernacle. The holy place, which represented man, and the, and the, most, the, the most holy place, or the holy of holies, which represented God. And because in the Old Covenant, because of what Adam did, there was a veil that separated God from man. And that was illustrated in the tabernacle. And in the most holy place, in the Holy of Holies, is where the Ark of Covenant, God's presence, was represented or illustrated by, by a tabernacle called the most holy place and a veil that separated the two. But it was hidden. Man did not have direct access to God like we do in the New Covenant. We're talking about the New Covenant in His blood. Okay, that's what we're talking about. I think I could have gone forward. Yeah, anyway, so with that in mind, again in Exodus chapter 25, I'm not going to read all this. We can, you can read about the Ark and all the details. But one thing I want you to know, that God designed this. This was not man's idea. This was God's idea. He was divinely inspired by God. Every single detail, every single measurement of this ark. And this ark represents, it's an allegory of Jesus, his son. Okay? And there's four main components of this ark of the covenant that I want to highlight again this morning. And again, you can read it from... Exodus chapter 25, verse 10, through all the way to verse 16. I'm not going to read all that detail this morning, okay, like I did last week. But, again, it's a picture of the person of Jesus. Let me say this again. There's four elements. First of all, it's the ark itself. It's a wooden box. It's a wooden box. Wood, in, in Scripture, especially regarding the tabernacle, represents man. But it's a wooden box that was overlaid with gold. And gold speaks of God. Now, I'm not saying God is gold. We're not worshiping gold. That's not the point. Okay? But it was wood overlaid with gold, meaning, again, it's a picture of Jesus because God, Jesus, was fully man and fully God. Okay? He was the son of man, but he was also the son of God. And so this wooden box overlaid with gold, was the ark. And in that ark, there were three things. How many of you know it says in 2 Corinthians 5 21, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
And in that ark, there was three components. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about those. The golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod of budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The, the Ten Commandments of the tablets of the covenant spoke of man's rebellion of God's standards. Aaron's rod that budded speaks of man's rejection of God's appointed leadership. And the golden pot that had manna speaks of man's rejection of God's provision. And these were hidden inside the ark. <coughs> Excuse me, no one was supposed to touch it. No one was supposed to open it. How many of you know Jesus? He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And this is all illustrated what I'm just trying to portray right now in Leviticus chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and 5. Specifically chapters 1 and 4, which talk about the burnt offering and the sin offering. Okay? But the third component of this ark is the mercy seat. And the mercy seat, we can read a lot about this in Leviticus 16, 14. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger. Again, you can read about the mercy seat also in, 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 in Exodus chapter 25. See, and Exodus 25 says, And there I will meet you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, and from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the which are on on top of the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you and command it to the children of Israel. There's several things I'm trying to convey here. I'm trying to go through this part faster and get to the main part of my message this morning. But the mercy seat was on top of the ark. So you have the, the ark itself, wood overlaid with gold, which represents Jesus, who is the Son of God, Son of Man. Within the ark, you have three... three um, Vessels that represent man's rebellion and sin. Jesus became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And on top of this ark is the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was not wooden, wood overlaid with gold. It was pure gold. It was a slab of solid gold beaten into shape to become flat. Which speaks to the cross. By his wounds, he was wounded for our transgressions, okay, and whatnot. And this mercy seat covered was on top of the Ark of the Testament. It covered our sins. It covered our rebellion, okay. And that's and, and it's, it's there in the mercy seat that God said that He will meet with you, and He will speak you from you from upon the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant is not something that we worship. It's an allegory illustrating God's presence. The Old Testament is a foreshadow of the new covenant, of the real thing, of the real substance. Okay? And it's here that he says he'll meet us. In Romans, Paul, and he read from the Amplified, says all are justified and made upright and standing with God, freely and great, graciously by his grace. His unmerited favor of mercy through the redemption, redemption which is provided in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward before the eyes of all as a mercy seat and propitiation by his blood, the cleansing and the life-giving sacrifice of atonement and reconciliation received through faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance he had passed over and ignored former sins without punishment. There's a lot here I don't have time to go into. Hopefully we'll have to spend more time in Romans chapter 3 in later lessons. But Jesus, the redemption that is found in Christ, is our mercy seat and propitiation by his blood. Okay? This mercy seat is an allegory of what Jesus did for us in our redemption. The new covenant of his blood. Okay? And on top of, if I go back just a moment, not only on top you have the mercy seat, the fourth piece is that you have these two cherubim that are on the mercy seat. Okay? And we'll fast forward real quick. And we, the first time, first place we see cherubim is when man sinned and God <coughs> excuse me, expelled him from the garden. Therefore the Lord sent him sent him man, Adam, out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he had was taken. And so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I don't have time to go into all that detail right now. But that's the first time we see cherubim. And we also see cherubim in Exodus, well, let me, let me go here real quick. In, in, in the first Passover, and we talked about this last week, God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no judgment will come upon you. I'll come back to that. But we also see the cherubim on the, the veil, the veil that separated the holy place from the, the holy of holies. That was rent from top to bottom when Jesus died for our sins through the cross. Okay? And we see that in Matthew 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and then beheld the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And remember, the holy place was a representation of man. It was separated by a veil to the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence among the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus died on the cross, God, from the top, because no man could have separated this, this veil was thick. It was 12 curtains sewn together. No man could have done this. And this was so tall that no man could have, could have, could have done this. Okay? And it was ripped from top to bottom by God, meaning God, man had full access to God's presence, to God's covenant. Okay? This is powerful. See, but these cherubim, let's go back here. These cherubim that we, we see in the ark, and we go back a little bit further. These two cherubim, they are looking only at the blood. The blood that was applied by the high priest once a year on the ark of the covenant, and these cherubim looked at the blood. See, they were the guardians of God's holiness. And as long as they saw the blood, fast forward, they passed over and there was no more judgment. And if you continue, if you read the, the Pentateuch, if you read the, the Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and even Deuteronomy, you'll see that as long as the blood was applied, not only were the, guardian, the cherubim guardians of God's presence and God's the, to the tree of life, to the Ark of the Covenant, 
but they also expected mercy and blessing because the blood of the covenant. I hope this is starting to make sense to you. So we're talking about the new covenant and his blood. And Trying to catch up with myself here. And so, in this new covenant, we have the Ark of the Covenant that's overlaid with gold, that has inside man's rebellion because Jesus took our sin upon himself as our sin offering. And he also became our burnt offering, giving us his righteousness through his mercy. As the blood was applied. And the cherubim, when they saw that, the, the God's holiness was satisfied in the blood. And we're going to look at next week how in the Old Testament the blood was applied once a year, but Jesus applied the blood once and for all. And his, it's a blood of the, it's a new covenant. Because it, the blood of Jesus speaks of better things than that of Abel. Okay? In the Old Testament, it was just a, a, a lamb, an animal. But in the New Testament, it's the blood of Jesus. The Old Testament is a shadow of the things to come. The Ark of the Covenant is a shadow of Jesus and what he did for us through the cross. And we have a covenant with God, a new covenant, because of the blood of Jesus. Okay? In the Old Covenant, the Ark was hidden behind a veil. Until Jesus came and God rent that veil from top to bottom, giving man free access to his presence, free access to his majesty, free access to his throne of grace, to receive mercy and help in our time of need. Okay? And so, in, in, in the Old Testament it was hidden, but in the New Testament God began to reveal it. As Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, but God was with him. See, in second, uh, let me go off on this just for a moment. In Second Corinthians chapter three, Paul says we are all made sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. We're all able. The, the King James says we are all able ministers of this new covenant that we're talking about. Not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What does he mean by that? He explains it. Because in the next several verses, he says, he compares the ministry of death with the ministry of the spirit. He makes a comparison between the ministry of condemnation and the ministry <coughs> excuse me, of righteousness. And he talks about how the ministry of death had glory, but how the, how the, the ministry of the spirit exceeds in glory. How the ministry of condemnation had glory, but the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. And the glory that, and, and what had no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels, the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of the Spirit, the, the, the ministry, the, the glory of the ministry of condemnation and death was passing away, but what remains. The ministry of righteousness and the ministry of the Spirit is more glorious. He goes on to say, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a bell over his face so that he, the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. He's talking about the law. He's talking about the old covenant passing away. 
He goes on to say, but if their minds were blinded, how would their minds be blinded? For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament, from an Old Testament perspective, there is a veil that blinds your mind. That's what Paul's saying. And because the veil is taken away in Christ, there's only one way the veil is removed, and that's through Christ. But even to this day, when Moses, the Old Testament, is read, a veil lies on their hearts. He goes on to say, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, receives Jesus, the veil is taken away. And now the Lord is the Spirit, and what the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He just talked about the ministry of the Spirit. And with the ministry of the Spirit, there is freedom. And he goes on to say, but we all with an unveiled face. Why? Because we receive Christ. We're under a new covenant. We are under, was the old covenant, was the old covenant bad? No, it had glory. But the new covenant exceeds much more in glory. The old covenant passed away, but we are in a better covenant. We're going to explain all that in more detail later. Beholding as in the mirror, see, <coughs> but we all, who, who's he talking about? Those who receive the Lord. Those who have, okay? We all, uh, we have unveiled faith. Why do we have unveiled faith? Because we received the Lord and the veil was taken away. Okay? What was the veil doing? It was blinding our minds. Okay? That's what it was doing. Now, the, um, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord. What glory? The glory, the, the glory of the ministry of righteousness. The glory of the ministry of the Spirit. Okay, are being transformed, metamorphosis, into the same image. What image? The image that we are beholding. The glory of, of his righteousness. The glory of his spirit. And we are, <coughs> excuse me, we are transformed from the glory of the law, the ministry of condemnation and death, to the glory of the ministry of righteousness, the glory of the spirit, just by the spirit of God. Therefore, since we have this ministry. What ministry? The ministry of righteousness. The ministry of the Spirit. Two chapters later, he's going to call it the ministry of reconciliation. And as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. There's a lot said there. We're going to spend more time on that in the weeks to come. Okay. Peter says it this way. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of Jesus. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus as our Lord. As his divine power is given to us, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls by glory and virtue. There's a lot there. I don't have time to spend on it right now. But by which we have been given to us exceeding great precious promises, speaking of covenant, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world. There's a lot in here. I don't have time to unpack it all right now. Excuse me. But if we understand these precious promises, God's covenant with us, through these promises we can be partakers of God's nature. God's nature, his covenant, his majesty, his presence was hidden behind a veil. That veil was removed because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we now have full access to to see God in all his glory, in all his majesty. And not only that, not only can we see God's divine nature and fellowship with that, but we can also be partakers of that divine nature 
when we, through the knowledge of Jesus, through the knowledge of God, we are we we know these promises, and we and they are exceedingly great promises. We may not be partakers of His divine nature. That's powerful. See, God's nature is revealed, and we can be partakers of that divine nature. It's God's extravagant grace. It's God's unlimited power. And that's why we preach that, that through one man's offense, death reigns. But those much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. That's why we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. <coughs> the good news, the too good to be true news of Christ. For it is the power of God. It is the dunamis dynamite power of God. It is the power of God. You want to see God's power? Preach the gospel. Preach the new covenant and his blood. Because it's the power of God and two salvation. Soteria. Soteria is a, is a long word for the word sozo. And it means wholeness. It means healing. It means prosperity. It means deliverance. And, for, and this power, this salvation, the gospel, it's the power of God and two salvation. It's two healing, prosperity, and deliverance for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, also for the Gentile, for therein is the righteous God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just the righteous shall live by faith. There's a lot there. We've preached on this at, many time, at length and many times past. And because all this is true that I'm trying to convey to you in a very condensed form this morning, we can come boldly to this throne of grace and receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Now, why do I bring all this out? We are in a new covenant, the new covenant of his blood. The ark is a representation of God's glory, his majesty, God's covenant with us. In the Old Testament, it was hidden behind a veil. It's in the mercy seat that God said he'll meet with us. Even in the Old Testament, that's what he said. And God, we ripped that veil in two when Jesus died by the cross, giving us full access to his presence, giving us full access to his mercy and his grace, so we can come boldly to the throne of grace and receive mercy in that time of need. See, in the Old Testament, it was hidden behind a veil. There was a veil. This veil is only removed when you receive Christ. Okay? There was glory in the Old Testament, but there's much more glory in this new covenant called the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of righteousness. Okay? And if you read Matthew chapter, I mean Mark chapter 5, excuse me, you'll see that a woman with an issue of blood got a glimpse of God's healing power. And she had the tenacity to reach out and touch his glory, to touch Jesus and receive mercy and grace and healing in her time of need. If you read Matthew chapter 15, you'll find another woman, a, a, a Syrophoenician mother, who had the tenacity to get a glimpse of God's compassion. And he, she had the tenacity of reaching out for deliverance for her daughter. Jesus said she, he did not come to minister to her. But she had the tenacity to say, but even the dogs get the crumbs from the master's table. 
and Jesus marveled at her faith, at her tenacity, at her boldness to come to the throne of grace to receive mercy in time of need. If you read John 4, you'll see another woman who had a scandalous past, and she got a glimpse of God's unconditional love and acceptance. We're talking about the woman at the well. And she had the tenacity to talk with Jesus. And as she talked with him, she received his forgiveness and changed her life forever. Where she now, instead of having a scandalous future, she now began to preach the gospel to all Samaria. A woman. Okay. So I share a lot of those things about the Ark of the Covenant, God, what it represents. But there's two more things I want to bring out about the Ark of the Covenant, the whole, the whole enchilada. Because the Ark shadows the substance, which is Christ. It's an allegory. Okay, we're not worshiping some piece of furniture. We are worshiping what the furniture represents, and it represents God's presence, God's covenant with us. We're representing, we're worshiping the, who it represents, and it represents Jesus. Okay? See, the Ark of the Covenant did not only represent God's presence, but God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, always went ahead of them. It always went before them. Where it went, they went. Where it stayed, they stayed. The Ark of the Covenant always went before them. And in the book of Joshua, you see that Israel went into the promised land. And when they went to the promised land, and they came upon the Jordan that separated them and the wilderness, it was a promised land. It was a river. And that river was at flood stage. It wasn't just a little stream of water. It wasn't like some of the rivers here in California that are just bone dry. This river was raging at flood stage. It would have been, but it's, from a natural perspective, it would have seemed more logical to come across this river in the winter or in the fall when it was low. But they were in the spring, obviously, a flood stage when they, the, the, the river was, was over flowing its banks. But God gave them very specific directions of how they were to enter, come out of the wilderness and enter into the promised land. How many of you are asking God for a breakthrough? How many of you are asking God for something to do in your life? Healing, wisdom, direction, breakthrough, prosperity, and provision for what God's called you to do. The Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, His covenant goes before you. In Joshua chapter 3, we'll pick up verse 7. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of Israel. <coughs> That's the third time I see the word where God says he's going to exalt somebody. That they may know that as I was with Moses, I will be with you. And you shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. What are they bearing? The Ark of the Covenant. Saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. Excuse me for a second. Who's out to say, verse 9? 
So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Abide us, you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will without fail drive out before you all the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and all the Perizzites and the Allites. Okay? That's all going to be doing now. Verse 11. And behold the Ark of the Covenant. Behold the Ark of the Covenant. That's what we've been talking about. Of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you, in, you into the Jordan. Is God calling you to do something? Is God calling you to a promised land that he provided for you in Jesus Christ? Are not all the promises of God yes and amen to the glory of God by us? The ark of the God's covenant will cross over before you. Now therefore take for yourselves Twelve men from the tribes of Israel, and one man from every tribe. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the, the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. This is, this is just powerful. I want, to, I want to read this part again. As soon as the soles of the feet of the priests, who, what are they doing? They're burying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of God, shall rest in the, in the waters of the Jordan. See, the key thing is not so much that the priests. The key thing is they're, what they're carrying. God said, God said that the Ark of the Covenant would go before them and to cross the land. And the waters of the Jordan would cut off the waters, would come down upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. The word heap, if you study out in the Hebrew, it means to bow. It would be bowing down to their feet. And so it was, when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, I mean, they just got their toes in. For the Jordan was overflowed all the space during the whole time of harvest. That the waters which came down from upstream stood still. <coughs> Excuse me. And rose in a heap. And very far away, all the way back to Adam. Above that island, the whole other message. The city that is beside the rest time. And so, the waters that were, went down into the sea of the uh, Ar Arba. And the salt, the salt sea fell and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. And then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground. I mean, this water not only stood in the heat, but the ground dried. In the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. You need a breakthrough? The Ark of God's Covenant. Will go before you. As the priest stepped into, they stood in the heap. See, do you have a situation that you can't handle? God says, through the new covenant of my blood, that we are to remember as we take communion and, and, and throughout our days and weeks that Jesus went ahead of us. The Ark of the Covenant represents what Jesus did for us on the cross. And at this table of remembrance, the as we remember the covenant of his blood, 
We are to remember that Jesus went before us. And we can trust his covenant. We can trust his faithfulness. And we can cross over from our wilderness to the promised land that God has for us. The second thing that I want to bring about, about the Ark of the Covenant, that's the first thing that God goes before us. The second thing I want to bring out is that the Ark brought unbelievable blessings. Okay. When we talk about success, it is the success of a marriage, success of a business, success in life. What really brings success? Is it working harder? Is it working endless hours? Is it working multiple jobs? Does success really come from people? Or are we not the children of God? Are we not the children of the God's people? Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. There's a whole story behind how I got there. But David got angry with God. <coughs> First of all, they were not transporting the Ark of the Covenant the way God told them to transport it. And as they were transporting it, it began, it, 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 it stumbled, and one Abraham, uh, one of David's men reached out to stabilize the Ark of the Covenant so it wouldn't fall. And the fact that he touched the ark, which was forbidden by the law, he died. And David was angry at God that that had happened. And when it was, he, because he was angry with God, David put the ark of the covenant in Obed Edom's house. Obed Edom was poor. He lived outside the city. He did not live within the city. Okay. And this is where David placed the Ark of the Covenant. And we'll pick up the story in 2 Samuel 6, 11. And the Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. For three months it was there. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And now was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. <coughs> and so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. That's awesome. Obed-Edom's house was blessed simply because God's covenant, God's presence was there. Obed-Edom didn't do anything. He just was the caretaker. He just was the host of that ark. Okay? But when David took the ark back to the city of David, Obed-Edom had already experienced what the ark of the covenant could do. And so, you can read in 1 Chronicles 16 how that Asaph and his brothers, therefore, before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord should minister before the Ark of the Regulary, had every day's work required. And Obed-Edom, same guy, 
with his 68 brethren. 68 brethren. Wow, that's a big family. Including Obedium, the son of Judas and Hosea, to be what? Gatekeepers. Obed, Obedium, who once was outside the city, moved to Jerusalem to be a doorkeeper, to be a gatekeeper of the ark regularly. This guy wanted, he wanted to be near this ark. He wanted to be in God's presence. And he, because he valued God's presence. He valued God's covenant. Does it not say that surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? As I, we still got about 25 minutes left. In these last 25 minutes, I want to go a, different, a little different direction talking about covenant this morning. But we're going to stick, we're going to stay with David for a while because David understood covenant. Okay. David said this in Psalm 89. My covenant, he's speaking about God, I will not break or alter the word that goes out of my lips. He's prophesying from, from God that God will not break his covenant and he will not alter the word that has gone out of his lips. David understood covenant. David understood what covenant meant. And he understood the covenant of God. See, again, a contract, if you break a contract, you may have a fine, you may pay a penalty, you may go to prison, but if you break, the only way to get out of a covenant is you die. It was always a blood covenant. I told you a little bit how a covenant could be made in biblical times, but another way that a covenant could be made in biblical times is this would take place. They, the, let's just say we have two brothers like David and Jonathan. They would cut their wrists, not in a way to commit suicide. They would just make a little incision, a little cut. I think I said that wrong, a little cut. And then they would join those things. You'd seen this probably on TV in different ways. They might use a finger or whatever. And they would become blood brothers. Or sisters or whatever they might be. And they would join those wrists together. So the blood flows as one. Another thing they would do. In connection with that blood. Is that they would exchange garments. For example, if one was a beggar and the other was a prince, the beggar is now seen as a prince. And they would exchange garments, because garments, the outer garments, I'm not talking about anything crude here, but it was an illustration that, of change identity, that they were one, that they, 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 they were positioned as covenant partners. If, there was, if they had swords, they would exchange swords, which was a symbolism of your enemies are my enemies. And when you, and even financially that would also come to play, because, you know, for example, if there was a financial thing, you wouldn't necessarily say, come and help me. You would say, 
Where's your wallet? <laughs> because your problems are now my problems. Your enemies are my enemies. We are covenant partners. Okay? A marriage is not 50-50. A marriage is 100%, 100%. It's still death to us part. My wife and I, I'm all in, she's all in. It's not 50-50. That's not how it works. It's 100%, 100%. But I, I, I preface all this stuff because I want to talk about two things with David. The first one is about David and Goliath. And David, David is, many of you have heard the story of David and Goliath. This 17-year-old boy comes and confronts this 10-foot giant. And he knocks him down with one stone. See, David understood covenant. And you pick up the story in 1 Samuel 17, verse 26. And then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I want to read that last phrase again that David said. <coughs> Excuse me. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, when David used the language uncircumcised, he understood covenant because that was covenant language. David understood we are God's covenant people. See, I don't have, I don't have time, I don't have the scriptures to support this this morning, but I could bring out scriptures. Circumcision was a covenant language between man and God. It was an allegory. It wasn't the circumcision themselves. And Paul brings down Colossians how circumcision speaks to our baptism into Jesus. We are baptized into Christ. Okay? And so we become one flesh with him. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 5. We become one flesh with him. We're talking again about the co our covenant in his blood, the blood of Jesus. But I'm speaking bit, uh, generically about covenant in the life of David right now. And David knew that we are God's covenant people. And how can this uncircumcised, uncovenant Philistine defy us, the armies, the covenant people? Of God. How dare, in other words, how dare this uncircumcised Philistine defy us, the people of God? How dare this disease that Jesus said that we've been redeemed from come and plague me and my house and my family? How dare this financial lack keep us? us from doing what God's called us to do. How dare the, the strife or whatever the problem may be come and defy us, the armies, the people of God. 
I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm a child of God. I've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. I proclaim the Lord's death until his come, that his body was broken for me, and he pour out his blood covenant for me by his blood. Do you know that they were supposed to do a burnt offering before they went to war? Do you know that they were supposed to start and end each day with a burnt offering as a reminder that they are a covenant people, they are a circumcised people of the army of God? The burnt offering spoke of God's righteousness being exchanged to us. For he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We're supposed to be reminded of who we are daily before we went to war. We're supposed to be reminded that his righteousness is from us, declares the Lord. Isaiah 54, verse 17. See, David had tenacity. Eliab, his brother, didn't like it. But this tenacity reached King Saul and put David on the battlefield, a 17-year-old boy against versus his 10-foot giant. David wasn't even in the army. But he was circumcised as God's people. And he had tenacity. <coughs> we already talked about the tenacity of the Syrophoenician mother. Who said, even the dogs get the crumbs on the master's table so that she could provide deliverance for her daughter. We already looked at the tenacity of the woman with the issue of blood who reached out to touch the hem of his garment to receive healing. We can talk about the tenacity as a centurion soldier who said, Jesus, you just say the word and my servant will be healed. We can talk about the tenacity of the blind man who cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And when his disciples tried to give him the quiet, they yelled out all the more, with all the more tenacity, coming boldly to the throne of grace, saying, Jesus, have mercy on us. We can talk about the tenacity of Elijah. See, James says, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And he uses Elijah as an example. And when you read the story of Elijah in the book of Kings, you'll see that when Elijah prayed for rain, he didn't get a rain crowd when he first prayed. Elijah had tenacity, and he kept praying until he saw a rain crowd the size of a man's hand. Because it hadn't rained for three and a half years. And that was a whole other story of tenacity. But there's something about when we understand our covenant relationship with God, like David did, we know our giant's coming down. Because how dare this uncovenant thing, our person, defy us. <coughs> Excuse me. We can receive healing today because of our covenant. We can receive provision today because of our covenant. We can receive whatever you need from God to do what God's called you to do, to be who God's called you to be, because we have a covenant with God by the blood of Jesus. I got about 15 minutes left, and I want to conclude talking a little bit about David and Jonathan. 
Dude, David and Jonathan are first picking up verse First um, Samuel 18.4. Actually, before I go there, we'll go here. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Remember I said that when two people make a covenant, sometimes they will not only have become blood brothers through their wrist or finger or whatever it might be, but they will also sometimes exchange garments and swords. David, Jonathan, and David were making a covenant. I'm not, I'm not reading the whole context in 1 Samuel 18. I just zeroed in on verse 4 here. But if you continue to read the contents and all the way down in 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan tells David, And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of these enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan was prophesying that God would drive out all David's enemies, including his father, King Saul. But King Saul, Jonathan was saying, no matter what happens, show me kindness and do not cut off your kindness. From my house forever. Don't forget to show me kindness. Do you understand what's going on here? They're brothers. They made a covenant with each other. See, Jonathan was the rightful heir to the throne, being the son of Saul. But Jonathan put his garments, his robe, his sword, his bow and belt on David as the rightful next king of the throne. And John says, no matter what happens to me, do not cut off your kindness from me and my house forever. They made a covenant. They made a promise to each other. Jesus said, your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything less than this is from the evil one. Why? Because we're created in the image of God. God keeps his word. His covenant he will not break. He won't alter a word that came out of his lips. And if we're supposed to be godly like God and Christ-like like Christ, then we need to be like God is in Christ is, and we need to keep our word. James echoes the same thing in James 5.12, that our yes should be yes and our no should be no. Covenant. See, God says he honors his word above his name. Keeping your word is important. One of the laws of the Ten Commandments is that we are not to bear false witness. And when we don't keep our word, we're lying. Okay? Enough about that. Let's get back to covenant. But we need to keep our word. We need to keep our covenant with one another. Okay? Especially in the body of Christ. But Saul did die. Jonathan died. The Malachites took over and they were hung. They died. And there was a whole story about how a guy came back and said he was the one that killed Saul. He made up a fake story. But David 
take it seriously, and he, he, he executed the man who said he killed King Saul and killed God's anointed. Saul was trying to kill David for years. He even tried to kill his own son because he hated David because of what happened at the scene of Goliath and how he saw God's anointing on David, God's favor with him. And that's a whole other story I'm not going to go into right now. But in 2 Samuel chapter 4, Saul, it said that Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came. What news? When they were wounded, when they were killed, and they were hung from Jezreel. And his nurse, or nanny, took him and fled. And it happened as if she made him, made haste to flee. Remember, there was a death. King Saul and the prince were killed. There was chaos in the palace. There was mayhem in the palace. And they fled in haste. That he, Saul, Jonathan's son, fell and became lame. And his name was, I wrote it, I spelled it, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. I was practicing. Okay? Mephibosheth. Okay? And that's his name. Saul's son. And so they fled in haste. His nanny took him. He was only five years old when he fell. But he was lame for the rest of his life. Because of whatever took place as they, as they, as they fled in haste for safety. But over a period of time, time passed. And we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Why? Because he made a covenant with Jonathan. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. That's a lot easier to pronounce. And so when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. I love that response. Verse 3, And then the king said, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to, to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. And so the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, and lo, the bar. And the king, the king David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, and the son of Amiel, from lo, the bar, as on the mountainside, by the way. And now when Mephibosheth, I think I did better that time, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face, and prostrated himself. And then David said, uh, before I go there, okay, before I go there, okay, can you imagine this, this, okay, his father, 
and grandfather were a little king. This is the grandson of King Saul. After they was murdered, they fled for his life because of Nanny and Nurse took of him. Do you think that this, he might even been bitter at David? Thinking that David might want to kill him too. And so, you just think of all these years that he grew up. He's lame now because of everything that took place. He lived in the palace. Now he's living on the mountainside. And how bitter he might have been. Okay? And so he falls on his face. And you can see that some of the language are in this minute. And then David said that the breakfast up. And he said, answered, Here is your servant. Right? And so David said to him, Do not fear. He can sit a sphere of him. For I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. <coughs> Excuse me. And then Mephaphasaph bowed at himself and said, What is your servant? that you should look upon him such a dead dog as I. He's lame. He's an outcast. He's a fugitive, if you will. And the king called. I mean, he almost ignored Mephaphasaph. He called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul to all his house. You therefore, he's talking to Ziba, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. And you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son, Mephaphasheth, may have food to eat. But Mephaphasheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and twenty servants. And then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mesephiseth, said the king, He shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. And Mesephiseth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwell in the house of Ziba for service of Mephaphasaph. Sorry, can I get that name out? This is a beautiful story. This is what covenant looks like. Okay? David and Jonathan made a covenant. David loved Jonathan. He respected and honored King Saul, who didn't respect and honor him. Even in his death, he killed the man who claimed to kill him, have killed him. But it wasn't true. He honored God's anointed. And he honored his promise and his covenant that he made to his friend, Jonathan, by honoring his son, who was lame. Okay. And David... In the Old Covenant, a man 
would have so much tenacity to honor the covenant of his friend's son, how much more will not Jesus, our Father, who has made a blood covenant with us, honor his word and promise to show us kindness for his son's sake. See, this whole Jonathan and David relationship is another allegory of our relationship with Jesus. And God wants to honor Jesus by showing us honor like David showed Jonathan honor by honoring his son because Jesus was the firstborn of many brethren. It went all the way down to even Micah. Jonathan's grandsons was honored as well. See, God cut a covenant with Jesus, his son, who died for our sins. And he said, is there anyone I can still show kindness for Jonathan's sake. I believe the Holy Spirit God is asking the same thing. Is there anyone I can still show honor for Jesus' sake? I can eat at my table. My table of remembrance. That is spread out in the presence of our enemies. See, it's not about us. It's not about Mephesheth. It's about God Honoring his covenant, the covenant of his blood. Restoring all the land, restoring all that we've lost. Eating bread at his table, the royal feast, his table that's covered voice. Blessing our children and our children's children for many generations. See, this whole event ch changed Mephesus' life forever. With a whole new chapter. And I bet you David treated him even better than King Saul did. Knowing how King Saul had become corrupt. My point, and we're going to talk more about covenant in the next few weeks. But God has got a covenant. And he will honor his word. And his covenant he will not honor. We will not alter. We have a new covenant of his blood. And God will honor his covenant that he shed his blood for to his son and show his kindness. God bless you guys. The ark of his covenant goes with you. He goes before you into your promised land. And give it back his mercy seat. But he shares his blood is sprinkled that he says he'll meet with you and he'll speak with you. God bless you guys. You guys all have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.